it's my privilege this morning to preach on a subject that I've never preached on, um, even though I've preached a lot of times. So I'm excited about this this morning. On July 20th, 1969, there's some of you who were never born yet, at exactly 10.56 p.m., I can remember exactly where, where I was on that night at that time. These famous words were spoken. One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. At that moment in history, Neil Armstrong, commander of Apollo 11, became the, the most famous man in the world. He had stepped on that moon. Approximately one month later, on August 13th, Neil Armstrong, Michael Collins, and Buzz Aldrin were showered with a ticker tape parade like none other. Over 400 tons of paper was showered on them that day in New York City. They were being coronated that day as heroes who have come home. Another ticker tape type parade took place some 2,019 years ago in the town of Jerusalem on a Sunday like today. It was the coronation of Jesus as king and the beginning of what we call the Passion Week of Jesus. I want us to turn on our Bibles this morning to John chapter 12. Now, um, all four of the Gospels will mention the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. I've chosen John's version of that this morning. So John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. Let me read the text, and then um, the Lord's given me a few things to share this morning about that text. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. The next day, when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him, and they kept shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Hosanna in the original language meant literally give salvation now. So you had all these Jews in Israel who had gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover that was going to take place that week. And here they are and they're shouting out, give us salvation now, the King of Israel. Israel. Verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion, which is Jerusalem, the Jews. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Meanwhile, the crowd, which had been with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb <clears throat> and raised him from the dead, continued to testify. This is also why the crowd met him, because they heard he had done this sign. Then the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. If you go back to chapter 11, you'll, you'll see a little bit of context, and let me just share a little bit what happened in chapter 11 so we kind of get this context about what's happening here. In chapter 11, Jesus does the unthinkable. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, he was in a town of Bethany. Now, if I was in Jerusalem over the holidays, Christmas and New Year's to see our son, 
Kenneth just got back, and he's going to share some of his experience here in the next few weeks. But if you go to the old city of Jerusalem, you look out this one gate, kind of the northeast gate, there's the Mount of Olives. Then just beyond the Mount of Olives was this small town two miles from the city of Jerusalem called Bethany. And it was in Bethany that he did this miracle. He raises Lazarus from the dead in this town that sits just two miles from the gates. And it says in John chapter 11, verse 45, it says, Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened at the Sanhedrin, convened the Sanhedrin and were saying, what are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? So get this picture. Jesus had done all these signs. His reputation had gone before him. And crowds had gathered. He had raised Lazarus from the dead just a week before this. And now he's entering into Jerusalem, so his name is beginning to spread. And people who had gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover have come to see Jesus. And the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin that was gathered, they begin to wonder, what's going to happen next? And this is what they said in verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So from that day on, they plotted to kill him. God had set into motion everything in order for the crucifixion of Jesus to take place. So as Jesus comes into old Jerusalem, what I call old Jerusalem today, into Jerusalem on that donkey, God had set into place everything that needed to take place. The title of my sermon is Get Ready, the King is Coming. See, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, it put into place all the things that God the Father had planned in advance for his creation, for you and me, and for eternity. So what is Jesus coming in in this coronation into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, which begins the Passion Week? So one week from that day that Jesus rode in on that donkey, one week later, he would raise, he'd be raised from the dead. So what did this do? His coming into Jerusalem, this Palm Sunday, what did it activate? What did it do? I put three things that it did. First of all, Jesus' coming was to fulfill prophecy. Scholars say that there are more than 300 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament that have come true. And for our purposes this morning, we're only going to look at just a few of those. He came to fulfill prophecy as a king. It was prophesied in Zechariah 9.9. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah prophesied that Jesus would come into Jerusalem on a donkey, not on a horse, not as this warrior on a horse, but humble on a donkey. And it was fulfilled just as we had just read in 12, 15 of John, when he said, don't be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. He came, he was prophesied to come as a king. He also 
fulfilled this prophecy as a redeemer. In Psalm 40, verse 6 through 8, it says this, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, Here I am. I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. That was in Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. It, came, it was fulfilled in Hebrews chapter 10, 8 through 10. This is what it says. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, sound familiar. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Jesus came, he fulfilled the, prof the prophecy to be our redeemer. And by the way, we needed a redeemer, right? We were separated from a holy God. There had to be something that would substitute in our place. And Jesus was that. And then he also fulfilled prophecy as eternal life. In Numbers chapter 21, verse 9, it says, So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. In John 3, verses 14 through 16, some of my favorite verses in the Bible, it says this, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus came to fulfill, as king, to fulfill a prophecy. And those prophetic words in the Old Testament that came true in the New Testament, in a minute I'm gonna to explain to you why that's important to us today. Why is it important to me to know that the prophecy of the Old Testament being fulfilled by Jesus in the New Testament, why is that important for us as Christians today? But Jesus just didn't come to fulfill prophecy. He also came to fulfill a promise, a promise of restoring the broken relationship between man and God. He did this, first of all, by defeating Satan. In 1 John 3, 8, it writes, the one who comes the one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. For the Christian, Satan no longer has dominion over you and over me. When Jesus came, when he came into this earth, when he lived his life, when he died on the cross, when he rose on the third day, he defeated Satan and he destroyed the, the devil's work. But he also defeated sin and he defeated death. 1 Corinthians 15 says it this way, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. John 10.10, 10, it says this, that a thief comes to steal, a thief comes to, destroy, to kill and destroy. But Jesus came to give us life, and to give us life abundant. See, a full abundant life is only possible through Jesus because he restored that which was broken. 
It was just a little over a week ago in this room that uh, we did a celebration service for one of our very own, Don Morris. Now, some of you in this room know Don from way back. Some of you in this, in this room probably, uh, Don had an impact and an influence on your life. Don has a membership number of 155, and next to that number is the letter C, which means he was a founding member of this church, a founding member of this church. In fact, the first Sunday that this church met, Don Morris walked down an aisle and gave his life to Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that last Friday, a week ago this past Friday, sitting in this room, we celebrated the life of Don Morris. And yes, we grieved, but more importantly, we celebrated that which God had restored through his son, Jesus Christ. See, when Jesus came into this world, he defeated Satan and he defeated sin and death. And because of that, we have a hope that is eternal. Because of that, we can gather together even in the midst of grief and we can thank our Lord and celebrate a life because we know that we're going to see that life again. That's what Jesus did. That's what he did for all of us. But he just didn't come to fulfill a promise and to fulfill prophecy. He also came to fulfill a plan. Jesus revealed this plan. It's the spreading of good news of Jesus to every tribe and every nation. And by the way, Westwood, if you don't know, maybe you're new today, we have a mission statement. And that mission statement states that, that we are going to invest in people so that you can impact this world for Jesus. In other words, we want to invest in each other so that we can go out during the week and impact this world for Jesus. So what was the plan? What was the plan as Jesus came into this world and as he worked with these disciples, what was his plan for this message, the gospel message of hope, to get out? You all have heard this before. But I believe in redundancy. I'm an old athlete. And the more times I shot the ball, the better I got. So we need to know this. He did it by two ways. First of all, by making disciples. So here in Matthew chapter 28, it says that Jesus took his 11 disciples to a mountain next to the Sea of Galilee. And by the way, when hopefully we'll get a chance to take some of y'all to Israel in the next year or so. And when you get to the Sea of Galilee, this is where Jesus did most of his ministries, just north of Jerusalem. It's an amazing place because you really kind of get, get this sense that, yeah, Jesus was here. He walked on that water. And you'll see the mountain ranges that surround the hills that surround the Sea of Galilee. And you can envision um, this very passage of Scripture, Jesus gathering his disciples together for this very important message that he was going to teach them. And he gathered them together there on that mountain by the Sea of Galilee. And he gave these instructions to these loyal and committed followers. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus' plan was he invested in these disciples. 
And this investment in these, these disciples would multiply itself throughout the entire region and eventually the known world at that time. And I want you to know that message and that plan hasn't changed in over 2,000 years. It's still his message and it's still his plan for the body of Christ, which is all of us. I'll never forget being at a staff meeting at a really large church up the road. I was one of 36 staff members, and we were sitting around this longer table than that, right? It was a huge table in this room, and, and there was 36 full-time staff members, all right? Once you get the picture, I mean, that's a church in some churches, right? That, that's a church. 36 staff members. And the discussion was, what kind of plan, what kind of uh, program, what kind of strategy do we need to have at this church so that we can disciple our people, so we can disciple them. And there were some comments that were kind of handed out, and I was a student pastor back then, so you know, I was kind of the nobody. I was sat at the end of the table all the time and tried to pay attention as much as I could during those staff meetings. Now we have just a small group, so everybody has to pay attention to staff meetings. We look everybody in the eye. And all of a sudden, I heard my name, Rick. And I just kind of, Okay, uh, now my mind's starting to race. Exactly what are we talking about? I'm like, what are we just talking about? He says, Rick, what do you think? And it dawned on me, yeah, we're talking about discipling people. And I'm a student pastor, so, you know, that's kind of what we do. We, we win them to the Lord, and then we do our best to disciple them so that they can go and do the same. So I'm sitting there with 36 staff members, and the only thing I could think of was this. I said, all I want to know is how many of us around this table are investing in somebody right now. Are discipling an individual right now. 36 of us around this table. Do you think the discussion got really loud? Got really quiet. Now, I didn't know what each one of those staff members, we all had a little world. But from the response in that, around that table, I learned right then that even people who are called to the ministry full-time have a hard time investing in somebody. And when I didn't get a lot of response, I said this, and then I shut up. I said, you know what? I said, until us around this table are doing it, how could we ever expect the church to do it? Right? We can have great music on a Sunday morning, because this church had lots of resources. We can preach the word on Sunday morning, and that's really, really important, and we did. We can have great programs throughout the church, student ministry, singles ministry, kids ministry, and we did. But here we are sitting around the table asking the question, how are we going to disciple these 2,500 people in this, in this building? How are we going to do that? One at a time. Investing in somebody who will go invest in somebody else. That was Jesus' plan some 2,000 years ago. It should still be our plan today. Amen? Amen. I'm not going to ask you the question, but I want you to think about the question. Who are you investing in? So by making disciples was part of his plan, and here's the other part of his plan. By being a witness. 
In our passage of scripture we just read in John chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, we have this picture of hundreds if not thousands of people gathered in the streets of Jerusalem shouting these words, Hosanna, bring us salvation now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And near the end of that passage it says that the crowd which had been with him back in Bethany when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, said they continued to testify of what they had heard and what they had seen. In the book of Acts, we see this dialogue between Jesus and his disciples just a few moments before he was taken up to heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but I would think that probably the last words that Jesus spoke would be pretty important, right? I'm just saying and we just saw him, we've seen him do all these miracles, you know, we saw him walk on water, we saw him take just a few loaves of bread and fish and feed thousands of people. We'd seen him, seen him heal the blind and, and the lame and they walk and they see. We'd seen Jesus raise somebody from the dead. And we see people proclaiming his king, the Messiah, and the disciples did the same thing. So I would imagine if I was in this group of disciples, the last thing that Jesus said would stick with me. It would stick. And this is what he said, the last words of Jesus to his disciples. But you, you, if we're a believer, we're his disciple, will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. <laughs> so all authority is given to me. So what you're gonna do, you go out and make disciples and you're gonna teach them what I taught you. You're gonna teach them what I taught you. So we are gonna multiply ourselves and they're gonna bear witness to the things that you have said because you have seen Jesus you're an apostle. You've seen Jesus. You've seen him do these things. And now you're going to bear witness. You're going to be literally a martyr. You're going to die for what you believe in. You're going to die for what you've seen. You're going to die from what you've experienced. You're going to give your life as a witness of mine. Jesus had a plan. Let's disciple. Let's bear witness So what is our mission as a husband, as a wife, as a father, as a mother? How about a classmate, a coworker, a boss, a teammate, a coach, a grandparent, or maybe a neighbor? What is your mission? Aaron Coe wrote this. He said, there is nothing more freeing than abandoning your own mission and joining the everyday mission of God. <laughs> Most of us don't realize that we have our own agendas, okay? Let's all be honest, right? We have our own agendas. Last night, you got things ready for the storm, right? You made some decisions last night. You know, if it's really stormy in the morning, we have to make a decision whether or not to get to church. We have our agendas in hand. I go to work. I do my same routine every single day. I'm a teammate on a team. And I know the routine that's going to take place. We have our agendas. Aaron Coe says, hey, 
There's nothing more freeing than abandoning your own mission and joining the everyday mission of God. Bear witness to who Jesus is. Eric Mason writes these words, being, being on missions need to be rerouted. <clears throat> it has been focused on methods and models more than shaped by the gospel, God's mission, and the person of Jesus. Amen? Yeah. Thank you. So let me ask you a question. So what does all this mean? Jesus riding in to Jerusalem on a donkey to fulfill prophecy, to fulfill a promise, to fulfill the plan. What does this mean for me today? I wrote down three things. This is my conclusion. We're done. Number one, believing that Jesus is who he says he is is a fact and not a myth. What does it mean for me? The fact that Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament, I can look at this. Listen, if you're a skeptic in here today, and by the way, when I was a student pastor, uh, I'll never forget somebody wanted to know my, my, you know my testimony of what Jesus had done in my life. And I said, well, he saved me when I was a young kid, but let me tell you what he's doing in my life today. And I told him, I said, God had always put me in a place where I had these, these bionic student ministries. That's what they called it when they kind of outgrew the growth of the rest of the church. And this was my belief. My belief was, why wouldn't you want to know who Jesus is? Why would you want to be a skeptic? Why would you want to push the creator of this world away? Why would you want to say no to this salvation that is given freely? I don't understand that. And I would communicate that with every teenager I met. Why in the world would you not want to say yes to this? Because he is who he says he is. Now, I'm not a statistician, and you can go look this up, but I believe for 300 Old Testament prophecies to have been fulfilled in the New Testament by Jesus himself, for those 300 prophecies to come true, it would be, the numbers, I can't even count the number of zeros, but it'd be like this. I'd take you to the state of Texas, and we cover the state of Texas, I don't know, five, 10 feet deep with silver dollars. We're not talking about Alabama. We're talking about the state of Texas, because everything is bigger in Texas. And then we take a copper penny and we hide it someplace in the state of Texas, somewhere in that 10 feet. And we put you in a helicopter and we say, you got one chance to pick out that copper penny. Those are the odds. So if those are the odds and they came true, why wouldn't you want to know who Jesus is? I don't understand. And maybe I'm just ignorant, but I'm ignorant enough to say it's not on my agenda, it's not my mission, it's God's, it's God's mission, Right? Believing that Jesus is who he says he is is a fact and not a myth. Jesus said and proclaimed, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can take that to the bank. And when Jesus comes again, you'll face him face to face. And what are you going to say? So what does this mean for me? Jesus is who he says he is. Number two, we have a forever hope. Our sins are forgiven. Jesus has restored us to the Father. And by the way, this believing in Jesus, that Jesus is who he says he is, it gives me a solid ground to stand on. This we, ha we have a forever hope. It gives me a security to walk in. My sins have been forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, it says. 
I should no longer live a defeated, mediocre life, y'all, but one of confidence, obedience, and relevance. There was a guy named Jay Strack years ago. He was a student guy. I mean, I used to hear him all the time. We would go to his conferences, his leadership conferences, and I would hear Jason at all these big events with students. And Jason Strack's, Jack, uh, his story is, is really kind of tragic, but God turned it into something wonderful. He was into drugs, and, and he, his, his mom went through several marriages. I mean, it was just a dysfunction. But he says these things. He says, you know what? It doesn't matter. <laughs> None of it matters. I can't use any of that as an excuse for going forward in my life. And I believe that with all my heart. Because God had given him a forever hope. Because his sins, his past, had all been forgiven and he could march forward in his life and impact this world for Jesus because of what Jesus had done for him. There is a security that we can walk in that's very, very important. And then number three, I have a responsibility to proclaim him as king to the world. What does all this mean to me? I have the responsibility to proclaim as, as king to the world. It gives me a purpose to run with. I normally don't do this. But I want to read you a text from somebody that I've been investing in. And he's not in this service, I don't think. If he is, I wouldn't tell you his name yet. One day, I want, I'm going to, you're going to meet him. He's going to be baptized. Led him to the Lord not long ago and, and been discipling him, been meeting with him at Cracker Barrel, Tuesdays at 6.30 in the morning. He sent this text to me yesterday. He says, I just had an opportunity to witness to somebody. I thought of you. I'll tell you about it later. God's grace is remarkable. Y'all, I just about want to cry. I got goosebumps up and down my spine. What does it mean to me? That. That's what it means to me. That we can invest in somebody. We can complain, proclaim Christ as king to this world. It gives me this purpose that I run with every single day. And I know what some of y'all say. Well, Rick, you're a pastor. You're supposed to do that. No, 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 no. He didn't single out us pastors to do this. We're disciples of his. And we're to do this. Here's our impact point. What are we waiting for? The world we influence needs a witness. Let's impact it with our actions, not our opinions. Because our king, Jesus, is coming back again.